In this week's edition of Neyland's Basement, we discuss an ugly week full of blowouts in the SEC. Firing season is officially upon us, and we preview what could either be a cupcake Saturday or a trap game Saturday, depending on who you are. All right, welcome into the week 12 edition of Neyland's Basement. I am your host, Tucker Harlan, alongside Dominic Drongard. Dom, we have only got two Saturdays left of the regular season in college football. I mean, seriously, every time it feels like it gets here, it flies by and suddenly we reach this point and we we don't even know what hit us. It's ridiculous every time. I I never know how it goes by so fast, but all those Saturdays spent behind the TV, then all of a sudden we got two left. It's it's a wild ride for sure, and I'm glad that the Vols get two more in Neyland. Absolutely. So speaking of the Vols, uh, I alluded to an ugly week with blowouts just all over the SEC this past week, and that was the case last week as number 13 Tennessee just manhandled by number 14 Missouri 36-7. to uh, the Vols had three turnovers in this game. Milton threw a pick, also lost a fumble in a rather unconventional way. Then Jalen Wright also had a catch at the end of the first half in which he was stripped and lost a fumble. It allowed for Missouri to get some points on the board. And, you know, early on in this game, Missouri was really playing keep away. They had a drive where they had the ball for 10 minutes, 55 seconds, which is just nuts. But the real story in this game for Missouri, at least on offense, Running back Cody Schrader. It was not Brady Cook. It was not Luther Burden. It was Cody Schrader. 205 yards and a touchdown on the ground. Five catches for 116 yards. Almost had as many total yards as the Vols offense did for the entire game. So I don't know what happened with Tennessee's contain of him, both on the ground and through the air. I mean, I expected Tennessee to have some issues in the secondary, but the issues in the in the run defense, you know, Tennessee – going into this game at one of the better run defenses, both in the country and in the SEC. And they just got exposed in this game in a lot of different ways. This one was just really frustrating on so many levels, especially defensively, because what I despised the most was the fact that our defense could not get off the field. They just kept letting up third down after third down after third down. Every time it got to third down, you just you're waiting for Mizzou to convert. And people people want to come after the offense for this one, but really Tennessee's offense only had like five possessions prior to like the midway point of the third quarter. And those possessions didn't necessarily look bad, but the fumbles were very costly both times and really destroyed any momentum the Vols had on offense, which they seemed to be picking up momentum and then just, yeah, the – the Milton RPO fumble, that was that was bad. The other one was just a good defensive play, bad break. So really frustrating one to watch if you're a Vols fan and just extremely disappointing defensive performance on third downs. I'm going to disagree slightly. I think you can put a lot of this on the offense too just because we expected this game to be fairly high scoring. I mean, if, if, you, if you told me Tennessee gave up 36 points and – in this game, really only 29 uh, defensively, then, you know, I, I would have thought Tennessee would have probably won this game just because 
Mizzou hadn't really had it defensively this year against some of these higher octane offenses. That was not the case in this game for Tennessee. And it just continues to feel like this team has just been decimated by injuries all year long. And unfortunately, the one touchdown that Tennessee had in this game, Dante Thornton had a pretty messed up play on his ankle, and he's now going to miss the remainder of the regular season. We also know linebacker Arian Carter is going to miss the rest of the season. He was the backup to Keenan Peely, who has not played since week one, who I believe he suffered something like a triceps injury. So, you know, maybe he's back here in the next couple of weeks, but I, I just don't know how this team has managed to get so unlucky with some of these injuries. The injuries really have been a factor for Tennessee. And you mentioned a lot of key defensive ones. And then obviously Thornton going out. Brio McCoy is also sorely missed too, because he was the most reliable option on that offense that Joe could get it to every time, guarantee some yards. And then Squirrel got banged up a couple times. It's just, it's not great right now for the Vols injury wise. And, you know, this game just, ugh, it's hard to look back upon as a Vols fan. It was just terrible. Yeah, and, you know, really this is probably the weakest of the road environments that they played in this year. They just were not able to manufacture anything. It's just like this team becomes completely different when it goes on the road. Uh, so, I mean, it's just hard to explain what happens, where all the juice goes. But, yeah, just completely disappeared for this game. So, Tennessee takes a beat down. They're down to number 18 in the polls ahead of what is still a big game against Georgia this weekend? Uh, we'll see, you know, if they have even a chance at all. I, I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and foreshadow a little bit. I don't think the odds are very good this time around for Tennessee, but we'll see. Uh, in the meantime, we do have more SEC blowouts to get to. This next one I was not going to talk about this week, but then both athletic directors just made me talk about it. Uh, Texas A&M, a 51-10 winner over Mississippi State. Sunday, Texas A&M athletic director Ross Bjork announced that they would be parting ways with Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. Kind of awkward timing with a 41-point victory over an SEC opponent. So a little bit strange to make that announcement there, but I think we all kind of knew this was coming. Fast forward about 24 hours later to Monday, and Mississippi State has pulled the plug on its coach, Zach Arnett. So neither of these teams' coaches made it out of the weekend. What are your thoughts on this whole coaching carousel going on within a game? It's a very funny situation to watch. I don't think there's been many games where both head coaches have been fired directly after. The Jimbo Fisher one is very funny in particular because Texas A&M boosters – flaunted this like hundred million dollar check at halftime of that game, basically showing everyone that they're able to buy out Jimbo Fisher. And that is exactly what they did. Uh, we've been on his case for a while now. Texas A&M fans have been displeased for a very long time with Jimbo Fisher. He's been worse than Kevin Sumlin. It's time to let him go, but uh, comes at an awkward spot for sure. And it's a lot of money that they owe him. And Zach Arnett, I mean, it just kind of became clear that he wasn't the guy to take over the job, and I think it's for the better. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, obviously it's just tough to be in that situation if you're Mississippi State. They were without an AD at the time. John Cohen had run off to Auburn shortly before. So uh, no AD had a say in that hiring or promotion, rather. Uh, but a lot of times the interim hire just does not always work out. So, yeah, I, I'm not surprised at all that they made a move there. And, you know, it just, just the on-field product was some of the worst I've seen from Mississippi State in my lifetime. And, and granted, Mississippi State, we're not used to great on-field products there. But, I mean, th- this one, after what we've seen them do over the last, I guess, what is that, 10, 15 years or so, just under Dan Mullen, Mike Leach, it's a little bit unacceptable at this point. Now, going on the other side with Jimbo Fisher, uh, Ross Bjork, Texas A&M AD, used the phrase stuck in neutral to describe the Texas A&M program. Very good way of putting it. I mean, they were, you know, they got their sixth win of the year. They're, they're going to win next week against Avalon Christian. I don't care what you say. Uh, but they're probably going to finish the year 7-5 and five and go to a bowl. Um so that's just really what it's been for Texas A&M. I mean, it's nothing more than eight wins under Jimbo Fisher. And it was like that before with Kevin Sumlin. But here's the strange thing to me. For a program that has as many resources as it does, no matter who comes in and takes that job at Texas A&M, it just kind of feels like the result is the same Every single time. What what about you, Dom? I mean, I, I just feel like we just keep seeing broken records over there in College Station. Absolutely. And to me, it makes perfect sense. Texas A&M is an example of boosters running the school as opposed to the athletic director. And we've seen similar situations at places like Auburn where the boosters have a lot of sway. And it, it almost never works out when the boosters are in charge. And Tennessee, when we were in our mediocrity, Haslam was a big guy, big booster, who was very much a big part of being in charge of our team. And just it's never quite worked out for anyone to have the boosters directly involved. When the boosters support, but they don't give their two cents, it usually seems to work out a lot better because typically athletic directors and football coaches know football better than the people giving money. And I think Texas A&M is just in a vicious cycle where they are trying to please donors and it's no one's confident enough to push the donors away and just do their own thing. Yeah, so a lot of names are, a lot of well-known names rather, are appearing on that coaching search so far for a and I mean, Lane Kiffin, Kalen DeBoer are among the names on that list. So We'll see who they end up coming out of it with. Um, Of course, we will probably know the answer to that by the end of the postseason. Uh, We'll we'll get to that when it comes along. Uh, Rest of this week in the SEC, number two, Georgia, just pounded number nine, Ole Miss, 52 to 17. Quinchon Junkins ran in both of the Rebels' touchdowns in this game. Carson Beck, 306 yards, two touchdowns, and a pick through the air. Running back Kendall Milton, 127 yards and two touchdowns. Dejon Edwards, fellow running back, also had two touchdowns for the Bulldogs. I'm not really surprised by the result of this one just because I feel like when you have Georgia's full attention, um, you, you're just going to get it served to you. There's no other way to put it. Ole Miss, on the other hand, yeah, the loss sucks, but a 10-11 to 11 win season is not out of the picture, and that's about as good as you can do at that school. Indeed it is, and this one was one of the first games I've seen in a while where Georgia came out on fire. 
usually you wait until halftime and then they adjust like crazy and look a lot better, but they came to play this time around and it really showed. So like you said, when Georgia puts their full attention on someone, it seems very unlikely that they're able to come out the other end unscathed. Yep. So that's really all I got on that one. Number 19, LSU outran Florida 52 to 35. Graham Mertz, 311 yards and a touchdown through the air. Ricky Pearsall, seven catches, 103 yards for the Gators. Uh, ETN, Trevor ETN, younger brother of Travis ETN, the Jaguars running back, ran for 99 yards, three touchdowns in that game. But how about Jane Daniels, man? 372 yards and three touchdowns through the air. On the ground, 234 and two touchdowns. Uh, wide receiver Brian Thomas, six catches, 150 yards and two touchdowns for the Tigers. And his fellow receiver Malik Neighbors had six catches for 132 yards. So LSU, I think, without a doubt, is the most prolific offense in the SEC this season. Um, you know, they're, they're probably looking at a very good bowl game this year. Maybe another trip to the Citrus Bowl is in the works here for LSU. But on the other hand, Florida, it – I would not be surprised if we begin to see more and more talks about maybe getting rid of Billy Napier because we've obviously seen a, a coach at a big time program who's had his struggles, did not make it to a bowl. And, you know, Billy Napier is not going to make it to a bowl. And who I'm referring to here is Jimbo Fisher, by the way, um, bring in big time recruiting classes. But then they're just unable to coach up the talent, and then eventually the AD has to make a move. And what we know about Florida fans is that they do not put up with this kind of stuff for long. Like, you think Tennessee fans get upset with coaches that go five and seven. Try doing that in Florida, where you have every resource uh, just from a recruiting standpoint that you need to succeed in football. Yeah, and not to mention Florida's been losing a lot of key recruits lately, which is really adding to the case against Billy Napier, who he's not quite recruiting at the same level as the other SEC coaches, and his record certainly is not up to par with the rest of the SEC right now. So I think you're quite on to something there, whether or not it comes at the end of the season or if we have to wait a little bit longer remains to be seen, but like you said, LSU is easily the most prolific offense in the SEC right now. And Jane Daniels, it's it's a Heisman campaign for him. So I, I'm really thinking that he is starting to cement himself as the number one candidate for it. Yeah, I mean, outside of that Florida State game earlier in the year, and um, I, I just don't see a game that he's had so far this year where he's struggled at any point. I mean, yes, they lost to Ole Miss, but 55-49, like, come on, you, you can't put that against him. Uh, and then, of course, he was knocked out of the Bama game, so you can't count that against him either. So, yeah, I, I think a Heisman campaign is in the works if he can fend off Michael Penix. Uh, that's that's my big uh, question about Jaden Daniels as far as a Heisman contender. But with that, we're going to move on to the Big Ten. Uh, one pretty big matchup here, one of the big three, or one of the big three matchups, rather, in the Big Ten uh, between number three, Michigan, and number 10, Penn State. Michigan, just a little too much for Penn State. 24-15 win in Beaver Stadium for the Wolverines. Neither quarterback throwing for more than 70 yards in this game. I believe J.J. McCarthy did not attempt to pass in the second half of this game. Blake Corum ran for 145 yards and two touchdowns. He was by far the best offensive performance in the game. Uh, James Franklin now, 4-16 and 16 versus both 
Ohio State and Michigan. And now you're starting to look at something that is similar to that of Mark Rick's tenure at Georgia. Now, obviously, Mark Rick's much better human being objectively than James Franklin has been in the past, um, just as far as morals are concerned. But um, you look at the state of that program and they're able to beat everybody in the Big Ten except for those two teams on the regular. And I just think that has to be so maddening for Penn State fans after a while. Absolutely. I mean, if Penn State was in any other conference, they would not be winning as many games as they have. The Big Ten is extremely easy outside of Michigan and Ohio State. It's pretty open secret at this point, and Penn State keeps consistently just sliding into that third spot. They're incapable of rising above that with James Franklin and really just some terrible game management in this one from him. Uh, Just not a very fun game to watch as someone who, you know, wanted Penn State to beat the evil team from Michigan that's cheating. And (laughs) obviously after the game, we get that wonderful post-game interview where uh, we got the Michigan coordinator crying. and you would think that Jim Harbaugh had died when in fact he's very much alive and touting the fact that Michigan is now America's team because America loves a good cheater. It just gets weirder and weirder with Harbaugh with each passing day. We found out that apparently he's a judge Judy super fan and that judge Judy is a role model for truth telling and that he there's video evidence of him uh, at a judge Judy show with mm-hmm. his dad, it looks like. So, yeah, I just we're learning all kinds of crazy things about somebody that we already knew was pretty insane as is. And, you know, now <laughs> this whole thing is just unraveling. So, obviously, there's more to discuss with Michigan here in the near future. Uh, we'll have that for you when it comes along. But, yeah, it's it's just getting more and more bizarre up there in Ann Arbor. Uh, Big Ten West had some shenanigans out there this week. I mean, there's always shenanigans in the Big Ten West. Uh, Purdue upset Minnesota 49-30. to Purdue had the worst record in the Big Ten going into that game. That's a couple of just awful losses that P.J. Fleck has had this year at Minnesota. I mean, I, obviously, when you're at Minnesota, winning between seven and ten games a season is kind of par for the course, and that won't upset people, but – you know, just with the character that is PJ Fleck, at what point do you get tired of it? Indeed, it's it's certainly interesting out there in the Big Ten West. Uh, right now, we got a one, two, three, four, five team race for uh, the second spot in the Big Ten West. All three and four in conference with Nebraska, Northwestern, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Minnesota something just has to change out there in the Big Ten West, to be honest, because none of these teams are really succeeding at a high level. And the team that's beating them is Iowa, which that really says a lot. So guys like P.J. Fleck, they're just not cutting it. It's clear and obvious at this point that there needs to be a lot of changes out there in the Big Ten West. Iowa, by the way, won 22-0 this week over Rutgers. Not 25-0, 22-0. Um, and that win actually catapulted them six spots in the college football playoff rankings. Who who would have thought that a 20-plus point win over Rutgers would ever equate to something like that? 
I guess it's just the year of Rutgers <laughs> as they are now a bowl eligible team. Yep, it just happens to appear that way. Uh, one more for you in the Big Ten West. Northwestern, a winner over Wisconsin, 24 to 10. Uh, man, I, Wisconsin is probably the biggest letdown of the year for me. And Northwestern, easily the biggest surprise. They're now sitting at 5-5, five and five, and they are going to remove the interim tag from Coach David Braun, who inherited the program after Pat Fitzgerald left due to hazing allegations. And it's interesting to think about because Pat Fitzgerald actually took over as an interim when the head coach, previous head coach, Randy Walker, passed away in 2007, I believe. So that's now two guys that they've removed the interim tag for or from. And, you know, it, it, at a place like Northwestern, they're not really – they're kind of a backwater program. You know, they're not going to be expected to go out and win Big Ten championships every year. But I think this is good for them. And, you know, showing a little bit of resolve here in the program after a 1-11 and season and, you know – a season where nobody expected really anything for them going into it. I'm with you on both counts, without a doubt. Northwestern has been a jarring surprise. We both thought that there wasn't even a chance they'd win a game this year on U.S. soil, which they didn't do last year. They won their one game in Ireland. But, yeah, Wisconsin, huge letdown. Fickle coming in, Mordecai, the transfer QB. I thought they'd be lighting it up and putting up points in a league where no one gets any points. But more important, better. We really should have. More importantly, though, Northwestern's got a shot at bowl eligibility after that garbage, garbage season. And I think they did the absolute right thing by hiring this guy. Uh, if if you can go five and five with Northwestern, I mean that's that's a Herculean task. Uh, yeah, so. and you, you look at who's left of Northwestern's schedule. It's Purdue and Illinois. So you could you could be looking at a seven and five year potentially for Absolutely. Northwestern, which is just so insane after what happened uh, this off season, and then of course the year in twenty twenty two that they had. It's doable, and I certainly hope we see Northwestern in a bowl because uh, with Northwestern and Rutgers being in a bowl, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, looking here at the ACC now, had a couple of close ones for you that were, we'll call them rivalries. Number four, Florida State outlasted Miami 27-20. to 20. Uh, Jacoby George, five catches, 153 yards, two touchdowns for the Hurricanes. Jordan Travis threw for 265 yards and a touchdown. Trey Benson ran in two touchdowns for the Seminoles. Um, they've, they've had some close games this year. Florida state has, and I don't think Miami's a bad team necessarily. They're just kind of bizarre, hard to figure out. Um, but the path to an ACC championship for Florida state, uh, looks like it's, you know, it, it, it's looking like they're going to get it is what I'm trying to say. I, I don't, I need to look at who they play this week, but they've obviously got that game against Florida coming up here in two weekends and they have north alabama at home so they've already locked it up essentially yep and florida state it's it's been an interesting season for them they've had a good couple of close calls in there um looking a bit like a shaky number four especially in a very very weak year for the acc i mean their best win has to be that win against lsu at the start of the year 
But beyond that, they've played teams like Boston College close. They've played teams like Miami close and then Clemson close. And Clemson's been pretty bad this year, to be honest. So I, it's, it's almost a bit of a fraudulent number four in my eyes. I really think Washington uh, deserves a spot above them. But we shall see how it all shakes out. Nonetheless, this was an interesting game where Miami continues to almost be a good team, but just can't quite figure it out, like you said. You, you can't call yourself a good team after what happened against Georgia Tech last month. You, you just can't. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. All right. Uh, Tobacco Road. No, this is not a basketball game. Number 24, North Carolina held off Duke 47-45 in double overtime. Duke could not get the two-point conversion in the second overtime. Their backup quarterback, Grayson Loftus, threw three touchdown passes. Running back Jordan Waters, 113 yards and two touchdowns on the ground for him. Drake May, 342 yards, a touchdown and a pick for him through the air. Also ran for two touchdowns in this game as well. Uh, Amari and Hampton, 169 yards and a touchdown on the ground. Tez Walker, wide receiver, seven catches for 162 yards in this game. North Carolina, of course, very much this is this is very much their style of play. And, you know, Duke, it, it sucks for them to lose this game because it, it was one that they were very much in and, you know, had a good chance to win it. I hate that North Carolina stormed the field, though, because it had been a while since Duke had actually beaten them, and there was just no real need for them to do this, in my opinion. Yeah, that's an ugly field storm. Bad luck after beating Little Brother. You don't storm the field. It's just, it's a bad look. But UNC kind of going off of like the whole tangent of the ACC being weak this year. They've been a letdown for sure. We thought we we thought they would do a lot more with Drake May and Tez Walker getting eligibility was huge. And he's been very solid playing for him. But looking back at UNC's schedule, it's not been the prettiest, especially when they lost those back-to-back games against Virginia and Georgia Tech. But winning against a very respectable Duke team, I will say, is a pretty big achievement for this team. And it'll be interesting to see how the ACC shakes out here. Louisville holding on firmly to that second spot. But uh, two games to go, and UNC potentially could worm their way in there. Yeah, we'll see. They've Both of those games are going to be ACC, if I'm not mistaken. In fact, that is right. They've got Clemson and NC State. And Louisville, on the other hand, just one more in the ACC. They'll have Miami this week. So interesting weekend for those teams. Very much a track game weekend, I would say. We'll get to those when we get to them. On to the Big 12 now. Uh, Some upsets this week in the Big 12. Road upset first year. Texas Tech, a winner at number 16. Kansas, 16-13. Oddly low-scoring game. Red Raiders never trailed in this game. They hit a field goal with 30 seconds to go and the game to solidify that victory. Uh, for Kansas, Devin Neal ran for 137 yards and a touchdown. The big issue, though, for the Jayhawks is both of their quarterbacks, Jalen Daniels and Jason Bean, are banged up at the moment. Taj Brooks, the Texas Tech running back, ran for 133 and a touchdown in this game. Big game for the Red Raiders, in which has been a disappointing year so to speak. I think a lot of people had them finishing maybe top three, top four in the Big 12, but that's not been the case this year, but still have a chance to make it to a bowl. Indeed, and this one, it, it's really no surprise, to be honest, as sad as it is that Kansas's quarterbacks are banged up because the way they run that offense with 
a lot of quarterback run involvement. It's uh, it's not too surprising, but definitely a big part of the reason why Texas Tech won. It's hard to make Kansas score that few points in a game, and I got to say it's probably largely due to the quarterback situation. However, it's a big win for Texas Tech, who, like you said, a little bit of a disappointing campaign for them, but they got a chance to turn things around here. All right, here is a massive upset. UCF defeated number 15 Oklahoma State 45-3 to in the bounce house. Oklahoma State quarterback Alan Bowman, who when they made the change was really doing well for them, threw three interceptions, and the Pokes were held to 52 yards on the ground. John Rice Plumley, 299 yards, three touchdowns through the air for him. His receiver, Javon Baker, had four catches for 112. And check this out. His receiver, Kobe Hudson, very efficient. Three catches, 96 yards, three touchdowns. Nice day for the Auburn transfer. Running back, R.J. Harvey, ran for 206 yards and three touchdowns. A disappointing game for what had been an otherwise uh, – you know, cool story for an Oklahoma State team that had been struggling out of the gate, but, you know, it suddenly worked its way up into a position where, you know, maybe you're talking just a little bit about a Big 12 championship. Uh, but nonetheless, big win for UCF. I believe they go at it with Texas Tech this week for a chance to get to a bowl game. So should be interesting stuff there between those two. But very disappointing loss for Oklahoma State, especially to lose like that. Shocked to see this one for sure because Oklahoma State really looked on the path to recovery and they just blew it here quite simply. UCF looked astounding in this game and Oklahoma State just really fell flat. Not a lot to like out of the pokes in this one, but I guess we we're just seeing the return of uh, the sort of fraudulent team we saw at the start of the season with that loss against uh, University of Southern Alabama. So it's shocking, but I guess it's a return to form from earlier season. Yeah, it's not a good look for Oklahoma State. You need to be able to finish out the season on a good note. And uh, that is what we have for the Big 12. Let me take a look real quick. They've got Houston coming to town, or actually going to Houston rather, and then they've got BYU coming to town the last week of the year. So, I mean, 9-3 and three is not off the table for Oklahoma State, and that's about what you want. And, of course, once Oklahoma and Texas are out of the league, then it becomes a much easier time getting to the Pac-12 or Big 12 championship rather with regularity. I don't know why I said Pac-12 because the Pac-12 championship is about to die here after, well, really in about three or four weeks, actually. We will not have a Pac-12 championship after uh, the last the, or the first Friday, rather, in December. Uh, speaking of the Pac-12, we'll just go ahead and jump over there. Um, number five, Washington held off number 18, Utah, 35 to 28. Utes just couldn't score in the fourth quarter of this game. Bryson Barnes threw for 267 yards, two touchdowns, but did throw for two picks. Uh, Devon Vale ate five catches for 145 yards. Penix, 332 and two touchdowns on the other side for the Huskies. His receiver, Adunzi, had three catches for 111 yards and two touchdowns. And his running back, Dylan Johnson, 104 yards and a touchdown on the ground. I stand by what I said or, and what I've been saying all season long about Washington's offense. They're the closest thing that we have in college football currently to what Tennessee had last year with that offense. Utah, you know, 
without Cam Rising, it's just going to be a struggle for them to win games like this where you have to get into a shootout. Unless, of course, said shootout happens to be against USC. But with this game being on the road, it's just no surprise to me that Washington won it. It's no surprise to me either, but I am shocked that Utah was able to keep pace with them there for a second. But, <clears throat> excuse me, obviously I'm very sick. You can hear it in my voice. However, Utah just, they really they really sold it in the fourth quarter. If you can't score in the fourth, it's obviously going to be difficult to win a game, but it makes it frustrating to watch if you're a neutral fan or even a fan of Utah. Bryson Barnes, he's been doing all right filling in for Rising, but like you said, this team is just built around Cam Rising, and there's not really a way around that for them, we have discovered, besides some very tight defensive games. But going up against a team like Washington with that offense, it just did not seem likely. All right, one more from last week. Number six, Oregon outran USC 36-27 to in Autzen Stadium. Caleb Williams threw for 291 yards and a touchdown for the Trojans. But on the other side, Bo Nix, 4-12 and four touchdowns through the air. Uh, his receivers, Troy Franklin and Tess Johnson, had over 100 receiving yards. Bucky Irving ran for 118 yards and a touchdown for the Ducks. Uh, not really surprised by what we saw out of Oregon on the offensive end. You would have thought, you know, maybe they could have held them to a little bit lower than 27 on the defensive end. Uh, but, you know, maybe USC still got it on offense. The issue is that, obviously, they don't have a defensive coordinator in place, or at least not one that they can rely on. Yep. It's a very, very disappointing season for USC. Oregon, though, it, it's an impressive win regardless because that USC offense can prove really tough to deal with. Keeping them to 27 points and keeping Caleb Williams under 300 yards is honestly pretty impressive considering what that offense is capable of. And obviously, Bo Nix playing some hero ball out there with his four touchdowns, that that's a performance that's hard to beat. And Bo Nix really has sort of transformed into that guy for Oregon when they need him. Honestly, he reminds me a little bit of Stetson Bennett, where some games he's not putting up the craziest stat lines, but in the games where you need him to, he seems to really just turn it on. Yeah, it definitely feels that way with Nix. And I, I feel like for the most part, he's had a lot of very good stat lines, but mm -hmm. uh, this game, of course, is an exceptional performance for Nix. And I wouldn't really even put him out of the Heisman race at this point in the season either. A uh, couple other notes before we move on to next week. Dom, we got to talk about it because you are the Boise native of the show. Andy Avalos out at Boise State after what's been a disappointing season for the Broncos. You're the Boise man in the room. What are your thoughts on this decision? I'm honestly quite happy with it, and I think that it was kind of the general feeling for quite some time for Boise State, just not really pleased with how the Avalos hire has turned out. Obviously, he was coming on as a former defensive coordinator, um, and <clears throat> he really just he didn't do anything with the program. Boise State is the team to beat in the Mountain West, and if you're not winning the Mountain West with relative ease, it's a really, really bad look. Uh, Boise State just has a lot more resources than a lot of the other programs in the Mountain West, and just the history of that school, of that program, puts a lot of pressure on you. However, Avalos was another frustrating hire because Boise State has a very bad problem of not being able to go outside the program when they hire people. Uh, we saw it with Avalos, Harson, Cutter, uh, and then 
<clears throat> just plenty of guys throughout time at BSU who have been uh, a part of the program at some point. Nonetheless, in the coaching search, they're going to be looking there again with, uh, of course, always Kellen Moore is always the number one target for Boise State. That's the dream, but he's in the NFL. He's making a lot of money. I don't see him coming back into the mix, but another guy that would be great to see there is Kellen's younger brother, played wide receiver for us, Kirby Moore, and he's been doing wonderful things for Missouri, as we just saw last weekend as their offensive coordinator, and I think he would really turn things around and make Boise State play exciting football again because it's been too long since they have. Yeah, I definitely think there's a couple different avenues you could go down there. Um, you know, I, I don't think you're bringing Chris Peterson back out of retirement by any means. No or, way. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, you know, Brian Harson made it work there when he was there in the past. You could always see if you could try and get him back. I mean, obviously – the whole thing with him at Auburn was just a completely failed experiment. You could tell he just never fit, even just watching him mm-hmm. on the sidelines when he was on the planes. So, you know, it, it's not a terrible idea to bring him back, I suppose. I mean, obviously, you said you don't love seeing people that are from within the tree come back in the lineage, but I think that, you know, it, it is good to have people that know the area. And, you know, it's it's not a, a super easy place to recruit. I mean, I, I guess if you're trying to get, you know, recruits that are not as highly touted, you can draw them there. You know, obviously having a blue field may or may not help a little bit in the recruiting process. Yeah, and Boise, it, it is a growing city, so it's, it's getting to be a lot easier to recruit there. Just the – the biggest draw for recruiting is the history of the program as a smaller, uh, very much blue-collar mentality type school. And so it's it's difficult to recruit at a high level, but you're competing against Mountain West schools, so it, it evens itself out. But Harson, I, I don't think that would be a bad idea either, to be honest. All right, one more note on the group of five schools. We're recording this on Wednesday, by the way, and today, uh, actually right before we recorded, we got the news that James Madison and Jacksonville State had their postseason eligibility waivers denied by the NCAA, meaning that unless there is a situation where there are not enough bowl game or teams, rather, that are bowl eligible to uh, compete in the bowl games necessary, then they could use either one of those two. But for now, uh, they are not bowl eligible, both of which are having great seasons, by the way. Um, Jacksonville State has won. Let me look. Uh, I know James Madison has been one of the better stories in all of college football. They're undefeated to this point. And, yeah, they, they've been near the top 25 all season. They're 10-0 and right now. And you look at the Jacksonville State Gamecocks, they are sitting at 7-3. and three. So good season for them as well. Uh, Sam Houston State was the other team that reclassified this year with Jacksonville State. They're 2-8, and eight, so it doesn't matter for them. Uh, but overall, this is just so disappointing. We've seen, we saw it a couple of years ago with Bellarmine in basketball when they joined the Atlantic Sun. They won their conference tournament, weren't able to go. And what it feels like, when you see the NCAA pull this kind of stuff is 
we're punishing both the programs and the student athletes in the programs for wanting to reclassify and having success in the level that they reclassified to. That's what that's what I'm seeing here. So uh, I would encourage someone to to reach out if, if you're listening to the show. Uh, reach out to me. Tell me one good reason why the NCAA should deny these teams postseason eligibility. I'm in complete agreement. Obviously, on the show in the past, I've made it very clear that I despise the NCAA, just blatantly a corrupt organization that serves uh, to deepen the pockets of the universities at the top. And it just, there's so many things that don't make sense about the NCAA that uh, I mostly just want to spare you guys from my ranting because it, it's the same thing again here. And there's no good reason that these schools should not be allowed to compete at the highest level. It just does not make sense. All right. So we don't get frustrated anymore here. Let's, let's go ahead and move on. I mean, this is a subject that I could rant on and on about, but I don't want to spend too much time devoting negative energy to something that I I don't really want to invest time in. Uh, Looking at week 12 now, Number 22, Utah, at number 17, Arizona, starting off in the Pac-12 here. The Utes are 26-19-2 all-time uh, against the Wildcats. They have won six straight, dating back to 2016. Of course, they haven't played every year, if you include uh, 2020. I don't believe they played that year, so that's what's screwing up everything with uh, that six straight. The Wildcats held on at Colorado last week, 34-31. Looks like a little bit of a mess up there for Coach Prime right now. Man, I really, really like what I'm seeing out of Arizona. So I got to pick the Wildcats to win this one, especially with this game being in Tucson. I like what I'm seeing out of them too. However, I do think Utah presents a really good matchup for them because Utah, throughout the season, they've been able to stifle some really potent offenses. And they held Washington back a decent bit. I mean, 35 points for Washington is honestly a little bit lower than what we've seen from them. So I... I actually like Utah in this one just because I think their defense is going to be able to play a strong game, and I think that's the Wildcats' biggest strength. All right, coming up next, we've got a rivalry game going on in L.A., and that would be UCLA versus USC. That game is going to be in the Coliseum this year. Might as well call this one the Battle of the Disappoints, the Battle of the Disappointments, because that's what this is. Uh, the Trojans lead the series 50-33-7 and seven all time. They won in the Rose Bowl last year, but the Bruins won last time they played in the Coliseum. The Bruins are coming off a 17-7 to seven loss to what is just an objectively terrible Arizona State team that has nothing to play for as they were hit with a postseason ban before the season started. So with that, I'm going to have to go with USC to win this game just because I think that the losses to this point for USC are just not as awful as some of the ones we've seen with UCLA. And that loss, that loss last week in particular is what does it for me uh, and why I can't pick UCLA to win this game. I can't pick them either, especially without a head coach. Obviously, they fired uh, Chip Kelly. Uh, after did that, they? Uh, they did, yes. It's official or, or were they just expecting to? I'm pretty sure it was made official. Um yep. Okay, it says they're likely to fire him. I thought it was official yeah. already, um, but no. So it's not official yet. However, it's if 
if there's information out there that says they're pretty much going to fire him, I, I don't know how he keeps the locker room together. Yeah. So I got to go USC. And it adds up too because I think that this program is getting to a point where they're getting eight, nine wins, but they're just never cracking the top of the Pac-12. And of course, you know you're going to have to see tougher competition next year when you've got to go to you know you got to go play your games on the east side of the country against your Ohio State's, Penn State's, Michigan's of the world. Uh, so yeah, no, it, it would not surprise me at all if they were to move on from Chip Kelly like you're saying. Uh, but, of course, that has not been confirmed yet. Of course, if, if we find something out here in the next week, we will tell you guys about it. Uh, last one in the Pac-12, number five, Washington at number 11, Oregon State. This one's very intriguing. Huskies lead the series 68-35-4. and four. Uh, They won it last year, but the Beavers did win last time in Corvallis. Beavers are coming off a big win over a pretty bad Stanford team, 62-17. to 17. This is a very, very tough one because Washington is playing really well, but we know Reeser's a tough place to play. Don't ever doubt the third down chainsaws. I might have to go with Oregon State to win this game just because we know that environment is going to be charged up for this game. And like I said, trap game Saturday for a lot of people out there. I really want to roll with you too because we're kind of overdue for a, for a big upset in college football this year doesn't really feel like there's been that huge upset game and this very well could be it uh obviously you like you said the environment in corvallis gets pretty rowdy it's gonna be a fun one for sure but yeah no this this is a tempting one to pick too because the pac-12 always eats itself alive and it always ruins its playoff chances this is the most prime opportunity for the Pac-12 to go out in the most Pac-12 way of things. So I, I think I got to go with the Beavs too. Yeah, and I think the real reason we're going with the Beavers here is because of the whole Pac-2 thing. Uh, that was officially announced too, that they are, are the two teams that have the say in the, in the Board of Regents now. So good for them to have that, I guess, even though Washington State is just in a terrible place right now with football. They have just lost all the momentum they had at the beginning of the season. Uh, But moving on now to the Big 12, number 21, Kansas State, number 25, Kansas, the Sunflower Bowl. Jayhawks lead the series 65-50-5, but you wouldn't know it because they haven't won since 2008. Uh, The Wildcats beat Baylor last week 59-25. Baylor, I don't think, is a very good team this year. They're 3-7 at this point in the season. This is tough because this game's at Kansas. I think this hinges a lot on whether or not either Daniels or Bean are healthy. If they're healthy, give me Kansas. If not, Kansas State's going to win. I'm in agreement with you, and looking it up, it looks like Jason Bean will be the starting quarterback for Kansas, according to Lance Leipold. So I I really got to roll with the Jayhawks. I've loved rolling with them every time I've done it. And Kansas State's been a fun team too, but they really seem to lose all that magic this season. The, this year feels not quite the same for Kansas yeah. State. Obviously, I think we all know year, why. Yeah, no Deuce Vaughn. No and Deuce Vaughn. That certainly so, changes things. So, so sad that there's no more Deuce Vaughn at Kansas State. Uh, I know. But yeah, we like, we like Kansas there just because if, if Jason Bean is, in fact, going to play, I think that they will have the upper hand there in Lawrence. All right, one more in the Big 12. Number seven, Texas at Iowa State. Horns lead the series 15-5, but they have lost the last two times they've gone up to Ames. 
They survived last week at TCU, 29-26. TCU struggling a little bit this year. Uh, the Cyclones, though, big old win in Provo, 45-13 to against BYU. And that's not an easy place to win at night necessarily. Iowa State's managed to, you know, really turn things around after what was a pretty bad year last year. They were 4-8. and eight. Um, And then, of course, you had the whole situation with Hunter Deckers and the gambling. He's no longer on the team. So Rocco Beck has been the guy at quarterback this year for Iowa State. This is, again, trap game Saturday. I I keep saying it. Here we are again. Iowa State's a tough game. I do like Texas to win, though. I think Texas survives a very, very close game up in Ames. Yeah, I, I think I have to go with Texas, too. Iowa State's a fun pick here, but I'm looking through all the teams they've played this season, and they do have a loss to the University of Ohio. Not the best look for this team. However, they've been playing teams tough. Obviously, that big one against BYU, they played Kansas pretty tough, beat Baylor. They've got some respectable wins in here. It's just I think Texas has finally got things figured out to a degree, and I don't think this is where they slip up. Yeah, and we know Quinn Ewers is back as well and also probably eyeing a return for another season in Texas as well after this year. So uh, I think there's a lot of momentum, positive momentum for Texas on the way out of Big 12 play for them. Uh, Would be a very big letdown if they were to lose this game, though, because that would drop them down to two losses in Big 12 play. All right, moving over to the ACC now and – Two more track games here. Wouldn't you know it? Number 10, Louisville at Miami. The Canes lead this series 11-3-1. They won the last two, but they have not played since 2020. Uh, The Cards held on for dear life against Virginia last week, and we all know Virginia has not been a great team this year. They've played some ACC teams close, but they haven't been able to get very many wins on the year. Uh, This game being in Miami, I kind of like the Canes to win this game just because, you know, we we saw Louisville drop one to Pittsburgh earlier this year. Pittsburgh has been awful all season. But you, you just never know what Miami's going to do. But I, I think this is going to be one of those weeks, like you say, like you've been saying, Dom, uh, they're going to just decide to be a good team. Yeah, Miami is interesting, and this is a tough one for me to call for sure as well because Louisville has not – they haven't won too many games very emphatically. They've won their games, but not terribly – not a lot of style points in those wins. And Miami, on the other hand, just up and down season for them. TVD, though, their quarterback, had a little bit of a sad interview. I, I heard a clip from it where um, he was quoted as saying something along the lines of, I don't want uh, football taking over my life in regards to his mental health. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think things are going too well down there in uh, Coral Gables for uh, the Miami Canes. So I, I got to go with Louisville after hearing that personally. All right, moving on to one more game in the ACC. Number 20, North Carolina at Clemson. The Tigers lead this series 39-19-1, and they have not lost since 2010 to the Tar Heels. Granted, they didn't play every year being in separate divisions, but you get what I'm saying. It's It's been a while since North Carolina's gotten a win. Uh, Clemson, they did defeat Georgia Tech last week 42-21. to 
this game being in Death Valley and knowing that North Carolina has slipped up to Virginia and Georgia Tech th- this season, I just I got to go with Clemson to win this game. I, it, they're just convincing me that they're going to be able to do it just because of how weird and erratic the Tar Heels have been all season. I'm with you too, and it's it's more so because of UNC than it is Clemson that I'm going with Clemson. But, of course, it's Death Valley. It's a great environment. I just don't see a way where UNC is able to keep it together for four quarters in a tough environment, considering that has been an issue for them all season long. Just one in the Big Ten. Uh, Rutgers at number 12, Penn State. I'm literally just throwing this game in there to have a Big Ten game to talk about because – you know how it is in the Big Ten right now. There's just not very many good games all across the board. You might have one good game a week, and this is not even one good game a week. Uh, the, the Nittany Lions lead this series 31-2. to They haven't lost to the Scarlet Knights since 1988. Obviously, we discussed earlier that Iowa defeated Rutgers 22-0 to this past week. I think this is one of those games where it's going to be close for most of the way, but the Nittany Lions are going to get it done. I think so too, but I do see I do see a way where Rutgers wins. Um, mm. I just I don't trust James Franklin's decision making all that much, and with this game potentially being close, I could very well see Rutgers pulling away with this one somehow because Penn State, when they're under pressure, seems to crumble terribly. Like it, it's the collapse is really bad for them. So uh, I'll be fun with this one. I'll pick Rutgers. Okay then. That'll be fun. Uh, moving on to the SEC now. This is Cupcake Saturday in the SEC, if you guys are not aware. Uh, eight of the 14 teams in the SEC are playing non-conference opponents, not particularly good non-conference opponents either. A lot of group of five FCS teams that they'll just blow through the water. Uh, but we've got two games for you to look at here. Uh, you've got Florida at number nine, Missouri. This series is tied at six thanks to a Sugar Bowl win for the Tigers all the way back in 1966. Uh, The Tigers won the last game between the two in Missouri. Last year, I believe Florida won like 24 to 17 maybe down in Gainesville. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I just see no way in which Florida wins it this year, just the way Missouri has been playing. And especially with this game being in Como in November and the fact that Florida outside of every other year when they have to play up there in Missouri, they do not travel outside of the state of Florida in cold weather months. It's true. So I, I got to go with you too. The, and it's just honestly a pretty big mismatch. I think Missouri's a lot better team than Florida. and But I don't see a way Florida wins. All right, last game. Number one, Georgia, coming to number 18, Tennessee. The Bulldogs lead the series 27-23-2. They have not lost since 2016 to the Vols. Is there hope this week for Tennessee? I think there is. Anytime a team is playing in a home environment, there's always hope. Especially in a big rivalry game, there's always going to be hope for a team that's playing at home. So I don't think Tennessee should write themselves off. It's going to be extremely difficult and probably pretty unlikely, but 
there's a couple things that could happen where Tennessee can win this one. One of them is if they're able to have their way with the run game, which we were shut down by Missouri, so it seems unlikely, but I mean, I got to do everything I can to manifest a win for the Vols, so I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't pick them. So I, I'm picking them simply for the sake of I hope that I can will them to a victory somehow, but I it's not the most likely thing, I got to say. You managed to do it with Bama last year, um, but and I, I actually picked Tennessee to win at Georgia last year now that I, I'm thinking about this. Uh, but I, I just can't this year, not after what I've seen the last uh, – really throughout, all throughout this year, I, I just feel like that Tennessee is just not going to be strong enough against Georgia. And oddly enough, the last team they lost to at home was Georgia in 2021. But, yeah, I, I just don't see a way they get it done this year against Georgia. I, I think there's there's going to be too much. I mean, they're too physical. I mean, just the, the, the talent that Georgia has got compared to Tennessee is, is just on another level. And like I said, you do not want Georgia's full attention. I know this will probably be their toughest game of the year, given that it's going to be on the road in a ruckus environment. But I just don't see why Tennessee comes out with the win. Yeah, I can't say that. I disagree with you too much, but crazier things have happened. And Neyland, since those uh, Vols letters have gone up, it's been an undefeated environment. So let's hope we continue that trend. We shall see. That's going to do it for us this week on Neyland's Basement. For Dominic Drongard, I'm Tucker Harlan. We will catch you guys next week for some rivalry week action. We're already there.